Good morning, Good Shepherd. We do have some uh, good news, what I think is good news. Uh, we do have a target date for reopening. And the details of that have been emailed. You can find that also on our Facebook page and our website. So we are looking forward to that. And there will be some more uh, details coming and some opportunities for people to be involved in helping us with all that we need to do to prepare for that. But uh, we are excited that at least we have an end in sight. So uh, I hope that you have enjoyed this time together as we've been studying God's Word. We're continuing today in the book of Revelation. And what a challenge this great book is. But it's also very exciting. And today we are in Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to take on that whole chapter today. You know, you know, there are many people that claim to have visited heaven and returned to tell about their experiences. In contrast to that fanciful, bizarre, and often silly fabrications of those who claim to have visited heaven, the New Testament records uh, the accounts of two people who were actually carried to heaven in a vision. The Apostle Paul in, in first Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12 spoke of being transported to the third heaven, but Paul was prevented from, from speaking about what he saw there. But unlike Paul, the Apostle John also had the privilege of visiting heaven, and he was not forbidden to share what he saw. In fact, uh, he gives a detailed description of that which he saw in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. And John's description of heaven is one of the most complete, or is the most complete and informative in all of Scripture. And I want us to read today what the Apostle Paul saw and heard there in Revelation chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf, and the third creature had the face of that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. 
And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will, They existed and were created. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are amazed that you would give us this brief glimpse into the glory of of heaven. And Lord, we are helpless to know about this. We, We look to you and to your spirit to to open our eyes to the greatness of this truth, to give us understanding of of what it is that we have just read. We pray that you would help us to to comprehend it and to put it together in a logical way, in in an encouraging way, and one which would give us the, the strength to stand strong and faithful in this difficult time in this world and to give you honor and glory in all that we do. And we pray that you would draw hearts to yourself in faith through Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 4 represents a dramatic change. As we come to the third division in the outline of the book of Revelation. Now, you remember that Christ himself gave us the outline of this book back in chapter 1 and verse 19. And there he says, Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Now the things which you have seen refers to John's vision in chapter 1 of the glorious risen Christ as he walks among his churches. The things which are refers to the letters to the seven uh, seven churches which we see in chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which will take place after these things refers to that, the things that will unfold in the following chapters in chapter 4 through 22, after the church is taken out of the world. And you have uh, there on the screen... an outline or a a chart that you have seen before, but it may be, it will help you in looking at the the overall theme of the book. And by the way, we will post this on the website for you so that if you did not get that chart, you'll be able to download it. So in keeping with the Lord's promise to spare his church from the hour of testing, as he tells us in chapter 3 and verse 10, the church will be raptured before the time of the tribulation begins. And that's why the church is is not specifically mentioned again until chapter 20. 
Now, as we come to chapter 4, the, the scene shifts from the earth and the churches to heaven. And it says in verse 1 that after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And there's that phrase, what must take place after these things. And as we enter the door of of heaven, the focus now is on the throne of God. And it serves as the introduction to the future historical events that we see there in that chart, all the things that will follow, the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. So as John looked, he just said, behold. I mean, he was so astonished that what he saw, and what did he see? Well, he saw a door standing open in heaven. Now, that open door admitted John into what we call the third heaven. In the scripture, there are, the, there are three heavens referred to. There's the first heaven, which is the earth's atmosphere. The second one refers to interstellar space, all the planets and sun, moon, and stars. And then the third is the dwelling place of God. And it's the third heaven into which Christ ascended after he was resurrected and where he was seated at the right hand of God. So heaven now becomes John's vantage point for the for the duration of most of the book of Revelation. And after noticing the, the open door, the first voice John heard was a familiar one. He said it was the, like the voice that he had heard before, the sound of a trumpet. That voice came to him in his first vision of the risen Lord in chapter 1. And his voice is like the sound of a trumpet because it's clear and it's commanding and it's authoritative. And the Lord specifically orders John, he says, come up here, that is, to heaven. And John was transported spiritually into the reality of heaven. Now, some see in this a reference to the rapture of the church. But this does not describe the church ascending to heaven in glorified bodies and dwelling with Christ there. But it symbolizes, it pictures John going to heaven to receive revelation. See, the central theme of John's vision here is the throne of God. And it's mentioned 11 times in 11 verses. It's about the throne. It's about God ruling, God reigning over all the universe. And this chapter declares with absolute certainty that God reigns over all things. And because our God reigns, you see, even in spite of the terrifying events that are about to unfold, you and I as God's people, as his followers, we can face whatever future comes with, with confidence. And this, this marvelous chapter describes for us five aspects of God's reign. And they, they kind of 
cumulatively build confidence as we see them, as we recognize them and, and contemplate them. First of all, we can face the future with confidence because God reigns in sovereign majesty. Sovereign majesty. Verse 2 tells us, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Now, you know, most modern-day people who claim to have had visions of heaven emphasize trivial things, bizarre things, you know, like uh, splashing in the river of life with Jesus and seeing warehouses full of body parts, those kind of things. They're just, sometimes they're just mundane. They're, sometimes they're just bizarre. But when, but when John has a vision of heaven, what he sees is the glorious throne of God and one sitting on that throne. When Jesus spoke, you see, he says, immediately I was in the spirit. He was taken out of the dimension of of time and space and into the presence of God in heaven by the spirit's power. And and John was so astounded by what he saw that all he could say is, is behold. That's kind of the ancient version of wow. And what did John see? It says he saw a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. My friend, that is the most majestic sight any human could ever see. Almighty God sitting on his throne in all of his glory. The focus here is not on a piece of furniture. The, 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 the throne that John saw was a symbol of God's sovereign rule and authority. The, the throne is said to be standing. See, because God's rule is fixed and permanent and unshakable. There is no game of thrones here. The sovereign God, the almighty God, is the one who is sitting on the throne. And no one is going to unthrone him. There is no question about who rules. He is in permanent, unchanging, and complete control of the universe. And friends, listen, that ought to give you comfort as we look at the world in which we live. Our God reigns. And the one sitting on the throne, you see, is not resting because the work of redemption has been completed but he is sitting on the throne because he is reigning because judgment is about to take place. So when the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord, it says in in chapter 6, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, speaking of his royalty, speaking of his ruling, he said, you know what he cried out? He cried out, woe is me. For I am ruined, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and and my people are a people of unclean lips. You know what he's saying? My fear is I am about to be judged because of my sin and because of the sin of my people. He was terrified. 
Verse 3 says this, And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. Now, that description is reminiscent of the of the flashing light and the blazing fire and the vivid colors that we see in Ezekiel's vision of heaven in chapter 1 of his of his prophecy and revelation 21:11 describes jasper as clear as crystal and so it seems to be what we would know today as as a diamond and after uh, he sees uh, this this incredibly brilliant stone that is that's like ref- refracting all the the colors of the spectrum. He sees a sardis, and, and a sardis is comes from that, that's the name uh, of the city of one of the churches. You remember that? Well, this city got its name from the stone that was found there. It was a fiery blood red ruby, and it too expresses the the shining beauty of God's glory, and it probably also symbolizes the the blazing wrath that God is about to pour out on the sinful, rebellious world. So our God, you see, as Hebrews tells us, is a consuming fire. And John's vision of God on the throne shows us that God reigns in sovereign majesty. So we can face the future with with confidence because our God reigns in sovereign majesty, but we can also face the future with confidence because our God reigns in covenant faithfulness. In verse 3, the second part of that verse, it says, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So John sees a rainbow encircling the throne. I don't know if you're aware of this, but all rainbows are a circle. We usually only see part of it. Uh, When a rainbow touches the uh, the ground, well, it looks like an arc. We just we don't get the other part of it. Uh, About the only time that you see uh, a rainbow as a circle is when you're flying in a plane. Perhaps you've had that experience of you know, uh, looking out the, the window after there, uh, you've been through an area where there's been rain and you've seen a rainbow as a perfect circle. And, and, and at the heart, invariably, is the shadow of the plane that you are flying in. Uh, I've seen that a couple of times. And it's kind of heartening when you know, when you've kind of got, come through the storm and you look out there and you see that rainbow and you see the plane that you're flying in right in the center of it, it's kind of like a, a promise of, of safety, of, of deliverance. And you know, according to Genesis chapter 9, the rainbow symbolizes God's covenant faithfulness. It symbolizes his mercy and his grace. In other words, you see, God always fulfills his promise of deliverance. And the rainbow is a particularly important image that surrounds the the, the throne of God. Because, you see, it shows us that even though these horrible times of judgment are coming, that God will be faithful to fulfill all the promises of the Old and the New Testament. 
God's going to fulfill his promises, but and part of that is going to be in the judgment. <clears throat> so the rainbow that he sees is dominated by an emerald green color, which is uh, which speaks of God's mercy and grace. Uh, through through though the the tribulation, God is going to bring great uh, judgment and wrath upon a rebellious and defiant world, but he's also going to nevertheless fulfill his redemptive purposes. And we're going to see that all the promises that God made to Israel are finally and fully realized in the tribulation. This is an amazing thing that God, even though this this judgment is coming, God is going to fulfill all his promises to these people. And many Jews and Gentiles will repent and, and turn to Jesus as the Messiah. But we also see in this scene that God fulfills his promises to his new covenant people, the church. In verse 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Who are these 24 elders? Well, their identity has been greatly debated. What we do know is that the the number 24 is used in Scripture to speak of completion and of representation. So these 24 elders represent a larger group. The question is, who do they represent? Well, five possibilities have been Suggested, and I put these on the screen for you. Uh, redeemed Israel, uh, the tribulation saints, 12 patriarchs and 12 apostles, an order of angelic beings, and the raptured, glorified church. Now, let's consider the fact that the possibility that they could be the redeemed Israel. That's not I don't think logical because at this point, the nation of Israel as a whole has not been redeemed. You see, that's going to come through or during the the tribulation. What about the tribulation saints? Well, at this point, the tribulation hasn't occurred and they have not been converted. And besides that, we know that the elders are already in heaven when the tribulation saints arrive. What about the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles? Well, for the same reason that they cannot be Israel, uh, we would apply that. And there is no exegetical reason to divide them. See, they appear as a group rather than as two groups. What about an order of angelic beings? Well, this is the view of of, of historical premillennialism, which says that the church will go through the tribulation, and and since you can't have the church in heaven at this point without a a rapture, the only alternative is is that these must be angels. But that uh, uh, poses a problem as well, as we're going to see. See, from a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view, they obviously represent the glorified, the raptured, glorified church. They are human representatives of the church and they are pictured here 
as ruling and reigning. Uh, the role of uh, uh, the 24 elders is that they sit on thrones. And see, that indicates that they reign with Christ. But nowhere in Scripture do we see angels sitting on thrones, nor are they pictured as ruling or reigning. Uh, their role, according to Hebrews, is they're ministering spirits. They're sent out to, for the service uh, of those who are elect, those who will inherit salvation. And, and the church, on the other hand, is repeatedly promised that they will rule and reign with Christ. We're, we're promised a co-regency with Christ. The, the second uh, reason is that the term elder is never used in Scripture to refer to angels, but always to men. It's used sometimes to refer to older men, and it's also used to refer to rulers of both Israel and the church. And, and it, it would be inappropriate to refer to angels who don't age as elders. So while angels do appear in white, white garments are more commonly applied to believers. And that's particularly true in the immediate context of Revelation. Because you remember Christ promised the believers at Sardis, he says that they would be clothed in white garments. He advised the Laodiceans, he says, buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride, he says, will clothe himself in white fine linen, bright and clean. So the bride will clothe herself in these white garments. See, white garments symbolize Christ's righteousness that is imputed to them at salvation. Now, this pictures for us the fulfillment of, of the New Testament covenant of salvation. What about the golden crowns on their heads? Well, that provides further evidence that these elders represent the church. See, crowns are never promised in Scripture to angels, and the angels are never seen wearing them. The, the crown, the word crown here translates Stephanos. It's the victor's crown. This is the one that was worn by those who persevered to the end, who won the victory in the end. And you see, Christ promised that kind of crown to the believers at Smyrna. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And Peter and Paul and James all use the analogy of a victor's crown as a reward given by Christ for being faithful in the Christian life until the very end. See, this is a picture of of the overcomers having received their promised reward. And so God is faithful again to fulfill his promises. So if you look at it all together here, these 24 elders represent the church, raptured, now in heaven. And you remember the promise that Jesus made in John 14. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And, and if it were not so, I've told you, and I, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come and receive you again to myself. There they are. See, this is the church rapture, the fulfillment of that promise. 
Here's the church reigning. See, they're sitting upon thrones. Here's the church glorified in their white garments. Here's the church rewarded in their, with their golden crowns. Here's the church worshiping, uh, singing songs of redemption we're going to see in chapter 5. See, this is the gracious fulfillment of all the promises that God made to his church. This is God reigning in covenant faithfulness. But God also reigns in fiery judgment. In verse 5, he says, from or out from the throne came or come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. You know, in almost every novel or movie or TV show, when there's lightning and thunder, it, it, it foreshadows, you know, mystery or, or fear or danger. See, when the, when the writer says it was, a, it was a dark and stormy night, you know something bad is about to happen. Well, it's no different in the book of Revelation. You see, when you, when you start seeing the lightning and the, and the thunder coming out from the, from the, from the throne of God, it's, it's foreshadowing the fact that there's judgment that coming. Some th- bad things are about to happen. So John sees a, a preview of the wrath of, that is about to be poured out upon the earth as described in chapter 6 through 19. And the last part of verse 5, he says, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, as he looked at the scene of heaven, he saw two things. First were the seven lamps of fire. Uh, Unlike the the, the lampstands mentioned in chapter 1, these are outdoor torches. So they're not the, the little lamps that give a soft glow on the interior, but they're raging, fiery torches that were used on the outside. In the Old Testament, we know that torches were associated with war. Uh, these were carried by people to light the way as they, they fought, and it, was a, it depicts that, that picture of God about to bring about war upon the sinful world. And the Holy Spirit, you see, is his war torch. The comforter of those who love Christ will be the consumer of those who reject Christ. Our God reigns in fiery judgment. But our God, he reigns through delegating agents. That's an interesting thought. God reigning through delegating agents. Look what it says in verse 6. And before the throne... There was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. See, John saw before the throne, he says, something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, the sea here is metaphorical because Revelation chapter 21 tells us that there is no sea in heaven. This is a not a sea of water, but it's a sea of glass. And so ex- extending out from the throne is this huge pavement of glass that's that's cl- crystal clear. It's an incredible it's the it's the court of heaven as it were. In in Exodus chapter 24 in verse 10, it records a similar scene 
where Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel went to Mount Sinai, and it says, they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. See, friends, heaven is this place of dazzling beauty and light, refracting all kinds of jewels and, and, and beauty. It's just really, it's beyond our ability to to describe even to or to imagine. And, and it says in the center and around the throne of this sea of glass, he says there are four living creatures who play a significant role in the events that are yet to unfold. Now, the translation living creatures uh, has given some the impression that these are animals, but, but they're not. Uh, the phrase derives from the noun form of a Greek verb, zoe, which means to live. And so these are not animals, they're not humans, but they are living beings. The, the prophet Isaiah gives a detailed description of these incredible beings in chapter 1 of his prophecy, and later he reveals them as being Cherubim. Now, the four living creatures are cherubim, which are an exalted order of angels that are associated in Scripture with God's holy power. You remember Adam and Eve when they sinned, that God drove them out of the garden and he stationed cherubim at the entrance to keep them from coming back in. Uh, And then two carved cherubim were placed in the holy of holies to guard the holiness of God. And then uh, before his fall, Satan was called the the anointed cherub who covers. In other words, his duty was to attend God's throne, to guard God's holiness. Like Ezekiel, John struggled to describe this indescribable scene. And and he tells us that these living creatures, he says, were full of eyes in front and behind. Now, this symbolizes that they were alert and they had comprehensive knowledge. They were were fully informed, fully in on what they were supposed to do and and what part they played. And and then he tells us in verse 7 that the first creature was like a lion and the second creature was like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now, those descriptions view these four cherubim, see, in relation to the created world. The Talmud, uh, the writers in the Talmud said that this represented all the kinds of life that God had created. Now, the lion represented the wild animals. And, and their strength. The calf represented domesticated animals and the service that they bring. The eagle represented flying creatures and represented also speed. Man, the pinnacle of creation, represents in intelligence and, and relationship. And so see, these four living creatures are, are there and they have strength and service and speed and intelligence. And, and the four living creatures, like 
angels in general, see, are are deeply involved with the coming judgments of the tribulation. They play an integral part in what happens. One of the things that we see is that God uses these angels to instigate the judgments that they come. For example, one of them calls forth the rider of the horses. One of them uh, is the, uh, who uh, pronounces a, an economic disaster upon the earth. Uh, another is going to give the, the bowls to the angels that are going to pour out the, the wrath, bowls of wrath upon the earth. Uh, they, they, see, they're like generals of all the branches of the army. You know, you got of the of military. You've got the the army and the and the navy and the air force and the marines and and they're overseeing. They're they are uh, orchestrating, implementing all that happens in the judgment. They are they're the delegating agents that God is using to bring about His judgment. And it's in and they have full knowledge. See, they're all connected. It's, it's all in perfect harmony and according to his will and happening just as he wants. Here's the commander-in-chief in the war room with his chiefs of staff bringing about judgment upon the world. See, our God reigns through delegating agents and pouring out the great tribulation on the earth. And finally, you see, we can face the future with confidence because our God reigns with unceasing worship. He says in verse 8, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The scene in heaven culminates with, the, with worship directed toward God on his throne. And in the, the passage that, uh, in this passage and in chapter 5, there are five great hymns of praise. And with each hymn, the size of the choir increases. It grows and grows and grows that the hymn begins in verse 8 with a quartet from the four living creatures. Then in verse 10, the, the, the 24 elders join in. In chapter 5 in verse 8, harps are added to all the voices of praise. In chapter 5 in verse 11, the rest of the angels add their voices. And finally, in 5.13, all created beings in the universe join in the mighty chorus of praise to God. Our God reigns in unceasing worship. Worship is reserved for God alone, since there is no one like him in the universe. As David said in 1 Chronicles 17, 20, Oh Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. And this mighty oratorio of praise and worship is divided into two movements. It's the hymn of creation and the hymn of redemption. Now, we are only going to look at just briefly at the hymn of creation today. You see, the worship of God begins with the four cherubim. It says each one of them having six wings. 
Now, these six wings indicate that their supreme responsibility is to constantly worship God. We know this from Isaiah chapter 6 where he sees the seraphim use their their six wings in a similar way. There it says that with two they covered their faces and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew. So, So four of the six wings are related to worship. They cover their faces because even uh, created any created being cannot look upon the full glory of God without being consumed. They, are, they cover their feet because they're standing on holy ground. See, worship is their privilege, their calling, and their permanent occupation. God is worshiped in unceasing praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And he is worshiped unceasingly for three attributes. He is is unceasingly worshiped for his holiness. In verse 8, it says, day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. That threefold repetition of holy is the Hebrew way of communicating a superlative. God is the most holy, the holiest, the most holy. You can't get any more holy than God. And it's kind of a summation of all that he is. He is the holiest and he is, that's what he is, he is holy. God's holiness is his utter and complete separation from anything that is evil or or sinful. Because of his mercy and grace, you see, God refrains from bringing judgment upon the world as it deserves. And in the future time of tribulation, the opportunity for mercy and grace is going to be gone. And God's holiness is going to come forth. It's going to snap on the world and it's going to be expressed in absolute fullness. Have you ever have you ever set up a bear trap, a steel trap? They're huge, and boy, they've got a, a mighty strong spring. And you spread those teeth, those sharp teeth, and you pull them down. And when you do that, you set that trap with just a small piece of steel that engages and keeps that trap from shutting. Just that, it's just one little piece of steel that holds it all together. Everything in that trap says, I want to close. I want to I do this. God's holiness is like that. Everything in God says, I want to make everything holy. God wants holiness. God wants everything holy. But there's, there's one little thing that kind of holds that holiness from spring upon the, everything and upon the world, and that is God's grace, God's mercy. And for there comes a time when that ends, when that is tripped, and what comes is holiness. God is, is, is worshiped unceasingly for his holiness, and God is worshiped unceasingly for his omnipotence. He, it says in verse 8, he is the Almighty. Now, the Almighty is a title uh, which God identified himself to Abraham. 
and, and that term indicates that he's the strongest. He's the most powerful being. That there's no one that can oppose him. He is all power. And because God is almighty, he can effortlessly do whatever he purposes to do. In Psalm 115.3, says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You see, his power is clearly seen in creation. The greatest power that we ever see in the world from God is, first of all, his creation, the world that he has made. It shows his power. And then the second thing that we see is his transforming people from sinfulness to righteousness in Christ. God is a God of power, and he is worshiped for his power. First, he is worshiped here for his creation. We'll see later he is his worship for his redemption. In verse 9, it tells us, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, that triggers a response from the 24 elders. And it says in verse 10, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Now, this is the first of six times that these elders are going to prostrate themselves before God in worship. And this, this posture is it's, it's reverential worship. It's a natural response to a holy, all-powerful uh, a God. And amazingly, after they prostrate themselves, the 24 elders, it says, cast their, throne, their crowns before the throne. They're not concerned about their reward. Their, their concern is to honor God. What do they have to honor God with? Nothing except which God has already given to them. So all that they have uh, received as a reward, they take and then they cast that before the feet of the Lord in honor of him. And the elders began crying out, saying, Worthy, verse 11, are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power? For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Don't you love that? The, the focus of the elder song here on the glory of God manifested in creation. Creation. How can you not believe in creation? God is going to be is praised forever and ever and ever in heaven because of his creation of everything. You know, our God uh, is a great God in so many ways, but creation is one of the greatest things that we've, God shows us. And these elders acknowledge that he has the right to both redeem and to judge his creation. Their song anticipates uh, paradise loss becoming paradise regained. You see, our God reigns in sovereign majesty, in covenant faithfulness, in fiery judgment, through uh, uh, designated or delegated agents, 
and with unceasing worship. And because of that, we can face the future with confidence. Let me ask you a question. When the great tribulation comes, will you be in heaven with the church, raptured, reigning, glorified, rewarded, and worshiped? Will you be in heaven? You know, you can be. You can be if you will turn from trying to run your own life and submit to the reign of God in your life. If you'll put your trust in Christ that he has already taken your judgment upon himself, that he overcame that sin and that death and that he rose again on the third day, and that he will he has the power to transform you and to deliver you if you will put your faith in him in this great god you can look at the future and you can face it with great confidence you say how do i do that well romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god has raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart Man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And I want to tell you, friend, our God reigns. And if you believe in him, you will not be disappointed. And so this morning I would encourage you to call upon him, to tell him that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that you can have that life. You will not be disappointed. Uh, The number on the screen is a number that you can text if you have a response, if you have questions, uh, if we can help you in any way. So today, as we think about this reality, Our God reigns, and because of that, we can face the future with confidence.